everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening. Tonight we have a very special guest with us, former FEMA Administrator Craig Fugate is joining us. And uh, Craig, we welcome you to the show. We're happy to have you this evening. I uh, appreciate you uh, wanting to spend some time with us to talk all things weather. You've uh, experienced a lot from your journey in Florida to all the way up into Washington, D.C., being the FEMA Administrator. So we look forward to uh, hearing your conversations tonight. For those who are watching, uh, feel free to uh, follow along with us on social media. Tell us what you think about the show. Let us know if you have any comments. So Craig, uh, welcome to the show. Our, our first question to our guests who've never been on is, uh, what is your weather journey? Do you have a weather story? But I'm just going to ask you, what is your journey? I, I know uh, you started off in Florida where a lot of weather affects you, but uh, did you have a little bit of a weather bug growing up or, or was it all in emergency management? No, I can remember as a kid, um, you used to get the hurricane tracking maps at the grocery store and um, there'd be storms out there and, and you'd turn on the uh, no weather radio and wait for the tropical forecast to come through and You'd listen and get the coordinates and chart the map where the storm was uh, well before the internet and a lot of other tools that we just take for granted. With that, a young age, living in Florida, always keeping your eyes on the tropics. Um, tell us about your journey through, through emergency management. I know uh, we were talking a little bit off air. You started in a county and then kind of worked your way up. So tell us a little bit about that journey. Well, my first experience with a hurricane, I was actually a paramedic. Uh, here in my home county, Alachua County, Gainesville, Florida, where the University of Florida's at, with Hurricane Elena come buzzing through the Gulf of Mexico, and I was on duty for that shift, and we dealt with a storm that couldn't make up its mind and set off the coast for several days before it left. Uh, but I started out in 1987, moving from uh, fire rescue to emergency management, uh, did that. Gainesville, uh, sitting in the north part of the state, we get everything from severe thunderstorms uh, is when we tend to see our most damaging storms. And so we would get uh, every couple of springs, tornadoes moving through, uh, uh, straight line winds, stuff like that. Went to the state of Florida, dealt with a lot of uh, weather-related events, but most notably the 04 hurricane seasons. And then I went to FEMA. And uh, again, a lot of what FEMA responds to is weather-related disasters. A lot of flooding, uh, tornadoes, uh, you know, Tuscaloosa, Joplin, uh, hurricanes, uh, most notably was Superstorm Sandy. Uh, so pretty much throughout my career uh, in emergency management, probably more than anything else has been weather-related uh, hazards. Tell us a little bit about emergency management and FEMA and how they work together to mitigate after um, serious storms and other um, types of disasters. Well, the first thing I think people need to understand that the reason we have emergency management in the first place is the org chart of government's not built for disasters. And that's true at the local, state, and federal level. So what's happened in the uh, late 70s was the National Government Association began to realize that every one of these big events was almost reinventing wheels. It was never clear who the federal agencies were. Uh, what the roles were, it constantly changed. And that really drove the formation of FEMA under a reorganization order that President Carter issued. But the relationship is the way states are set up is they're the primary response to all disasters. Uh, depending upon how that state's organized, generally our first line is local governments, uh, mutual aid, state, state, state mutual aid with the federal government in case of FEMA supporting governor. So every time I hear somebody saying, well, FEMA ought to be in charge, I remind folks, uh, our government's actually a, a, 
of federal government where states have the primary role in domestic emergencies with the federal government supporting them. And I like to point out that if FEMA was in charge of everything, it would have been hard to imagine an agency that could have responded to all disasters that we saw during my term there without the leadership role of the governors, because uh, FEMA just couldn't couldn't have handled all that. It really is this idea that all disasters are local. It doesn't mean we're abandoning everybody, uh, but there are, there are you know key roles, responsibilities. But like I like to tell people, when the disaster hits, uh, we all work as one team. And so, Craig, uh, how hands-on were you with some of these apartments, like the Storm Prediction Center, the National Hurricane Center? Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, both at the state of Florida and at uh, FEMA, our, our practice was when we had storm threats, uh, we would have the National Hurricane Center, uh, Storm Prediction Center. Uh, sometimes, you know, once we saw the rainfall forecast, Weather Prediction Center, relevant river forecast in the affected uh, National Weather Service offices all on those briefings. And I think, you know, one of the things that I found when I got to FEMA was they were only talking to the Hurricane Center. And I'm like, you guys do realize there are other hazards that there are uh, forecast centers that deal with that. And the Weather Service in general, I think really appreciated the fact that they finally had somebody that understood that the Hurricane Center isn't the only products that are being issued uh, during these storm threats and that, you know, if we were seeing a significant flood risk from heavy rainfall, uh, you know, having the Weather Prediction Center now talking about that um, and amplifying that message. What do you envision a response might look like to a hurricane in the age of coronavirus? You know, if you listen to what Mike said and you go back several years ago and listen to him talking about hurricanes, he said the same thing. We've always recommended that people evacuate the friends and families, hotels and motels and shelters as a last resort. So I think I'm less concerned about that messaging as the messaging we've been hearing that people have been told to stay home, socially isolate uh, the risk of COVID and not understand that if you're in an evacuation zone, you still need to evacuate. Uh, I think it gives more emphasis to the fact that we've always said friends and families are a much better option than shelters, uh, that you don't have to go hundreds of miles, you just need to get inland away from the storm surge areas. Um, and the other message, which is kind of a uh, tricky one, is we, particularly in Florida, we've seen a lot of evacuations that aren't in evacuation zones. Essentially, people are trying to run away from the storm itself versus the storm surge. And Florida's trying to do some messaging around that of know your zone, know your home. That if you're not in an evacuation zone and your home's uh, relatively in good shape, built the current codes, to consider staying home and putting up your shelters and riding the storm out, again, reducing the number of people evacuate. Uh, but the biggest thing I'm telling people about this hurricane season is if you're in an evacuation zone, your plan is to evacuate, COVID or no COVID. And about the only real additions you need to make is add masks, hand sanitizer, disinfectants, and wipes to your go kits. If you could find the disinfecting wipes. If anybody finds them, let me know. I will trade you toilet paper. I've got that, plenty of it. What is your idea of what the plan is going to be for the rollout from emergency management perspective on shelters? Well, the Red Cross and FEMA and the national organizations, uh, voluntary organizations acting in disasters, have a website. It's the National Mass Care Strategy website where they've been updating 
uh, information on mass feeding, uh, congregate and non-congregate care shelter. Well, you know, I'm an emergency manager, congregate, non-congregate, what does that mean? Congregate care is your traditional mass care shelters where they're looking at how to screen, maintain social distancing and minimize the spread of COVID in those shelters. But the other thing is looking at more utilization of hotels and motels, dorms, uh, other spaces that usually weren't gonna be picked uh, for shelters. And there's a, I, I think there's an opportunity here. Everybody kept t- telling me how hard it's going to be. And I'm like going, well, last time I checked, most hotels and motels are not really doing well. And FEMA will reimburse if you put people in hotels and motels. And I hear how hard it is to plan, but the reality is we have a lot of capacity, particularly in my home state of Florida, to put people up in hotels and motels. And FEMA will reimburse for that under protective measures. So we're still gonna need mass care shelters. There's, there's good information out there. It's updated fairly frequently as we learn more about COVID and now that we're seeing cases increase. But the alternatives are, do you really want people not to evacuate because they're so fearful they have nowhere to go? Or do you prepare the shelters and understand that you're going to have to manage that with COVID uh, and take the steps to minimize the spread? Craig, the current administrator to FEMA testified earlier today before Congress, we're taping this, but today earlier on the 22nd of July, you had an opportunity as well to provide some feedback to members of Congress. What did you tell them about what you're seeing uh, in the state of the ongoing coronavirus response? Well, I think, again, my emphasis was on evacuations. We need to be clear about that and not mix messages with talking about how dangerous and and, and confusing and everything else it's gonna be and really focusing on when you're in the storm surge area, that's the primary threat we need to evacuate and we need to acknowledge COVID, but we shouldn't use COVID as a reason not to evacuate. So we need to clear that communication up. But secondly, we know that moving people is a vector and everybody talks about evacuations. I said, well, the other problem is gonna be on the response. Uh, We're still going to need to move utility crews. We're still going to need to move search and rescue crews. But if you think about a lot of these disasters, we see a lot of volunteers moving. And that may not be our best tool. And I, you know, everybody says, well, what are you going to do? I says, well, I don't know about you, but we got pretty high unemployment rates right now in Florida. So my question is, and, and haven't done this for a long time, there's not that much that requires people to have extensive training to be able to help in a disaster. And again, it's reimbursable. Why don't we hire people and put them to work locally? Uh, We've already seen this with COVID uh, in states where uh, local governments had actually hired restaurants to cook and prepare meals uh, under contracts to feed people that were shut in or isolated or couldn't get to stuff. And again, I I don't ever want to say we don't use volunteers. But I also think with the unemployment rates we have, particularly in the hospitality industry, I think there's opportunities to employ those folks during disasters to minimize the amount of people we have to bring in from outside of a community, but more importantly, start putting money back in the economy. So let me ask you this one, uh, Craig, because in your experience in not only preparing or helping communities prepare for disasters, but helping them afterwards too, I'm curious where your expertise and your opinion lies on the whole question of schools. Do you have an opinion or thought on whether kids should be going back to the classroom at this point? This is going to be a hard one um, because 
I always like to talk about big numbers. You know, everybody said, well, it's a little risk. You know, kids don't generally get that sick. Um, you know, we need to get the economy going. We need to get kids back in school. It's important for development. And I'm like, nobody's really answering this question. If, if the uh, rate at which kids get sick and potentially the rate at which kids have serious complications or deaths are even like small percentages, like less than one-tenth of a percent, you're talking about thousands of children going back to school. Those are real people and those are real numbers. Um, and I, I don't think we have a good answer for that. Um, I also think that there is opportunities to look at how we go back to the classroom setting. Uh, you know, everything from uh, a lot of schools don't have enough room to do social distancing. So what if we split the day in half and we split the the school up uh, where half the school goes in the morning, half the classes go in the afternoon. Uh, what if we started doing more classrooms, weather permitting outside? Um, you know, and again, because we're learning more about this is airborne and, uh, you know, why masks are so critical in minimizing spread. Um, you know, how is that going to all happen? And I'm not sure we have enough answers because in Florida, some of the schools will open up, uh, you know, in the middle of August. Um, so I think it would be prudent to think this through, um, get some consensus on ways to do this. And, and again, I just don't think saying you're going to open schools is the answer. But I also don't think that keeping schools closed indefinitely is going to work either. More of our conversation when the Carolina Weather Group returns after this short break. Welcome back to the Carolina Weather Group. Shifting gears a little bit, um, you, you're passionate about the resilience divide. I see this here in Charleston a lot where we have, you know, sunny day flooding and it often affects places that are less affluent than places that are more affluent. Um, a lot of the more affluent places are getting, you know, they're, they're, they're getting some of the uh, uh, Things like check valves, they're getting a seawall at the battery. Um, but meanwhile, at the corner of Haggard and Fish, Fishburn, where there's low income housing, you see at 6.8 feet tides, you start to see the creek overflow and start flowing across the road there. Several, you know, we had 80 something coastal flood events last year. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that resilience divide and how we can maybe bridge that. Well, the resilience divide is really how I'm trying to talk about the current process of using cost-benefit analysis to make decisions about investing in mitigation uh, and building uh, projects, particularly for future climate impacts, as well as the existing impacts we're already seeing. And so much emphasis is on how many tax dollars we save. You probably heard this, that for every dollar we invest, we save anywhere from four to nine dollars. And so if you're looking at dollars, you'll actually save more money the more valuable the homes are that you're trying to protect. And lower income homes, uh, working class communities don't score as well. So the bias, I don't think was intended to uh, short the most vulnerable communities, but by only looking at the cost benefit analysis of dollar saved versus dollar invested, we're going to see that divide go towards the more affluent communities, particularly those that can afford the cost share match of uh, in many cases, a minimum of 25% against the federal dollars. And I think we need to broaden the definition of cost-benefit analysis to actually talk about the functional impacts to families and communities, not just to dollars saved on property. 
Jared, I All want right. to take what you just said and uh, talk about Charleston and the uh, resilience divide and just roll that into talking about climate change and climate change adaption. Uh, Craig, what does that look like from a FEMA standpoint? Climate's already changed. Uh, I, keep, I, I think one of the problems we have is we keep talking about climate change as something that's going to occur in the future. And quite honestly, uh, that's the way we talked about it uh, in the majority of the Obama administration was something that we we're going to deal with in the future. But when Sandy hit, President Obama, and we'd already seen a lot of tornado and flooding activity and a pace that we'd not seen before. And we kept getting these record-setting events, which I remind people, if it's record-setting, we've never measured it before. And these weren't just isolated incidents. It was like a drumbeat. And the president said something that really, I think, uh, shaped where we were going to go at FEMA. He says, you know, the discussion about climate change is over. We need to start talking about climate adaptation. And the problem is our infrastructure was built for the past century of weather-related events. And climate is changing faster than our ability to keep up with the infrastructure, uh, to keep up with the improvements needed. And, and this is why I think it's so important as we talk about federal investments, uh, big infrastructure, federal highway bill, uh, HUD dollars, the alphabet soup of funding, including the FEMA disaster dollars. We have got to move away from building to our last hundred years worth of weather data and start building the future risk. And I, and I think there are more and more people that get that, that we can't keep building the way we've been building if we're, if we're going to survive. But I think there's some urgency that as much as people talk about reducing greenhouse gases on our end of the spectrum, I think the change has already happened and we're not going back anytime soon. So adapting to what's happened, uh, particularly our coastal communities, areas subject to flooding, uh, we know that the extreme rainfall events is one of the clearest signal we've seen in the last uh, decade uh, from climate impacts. And uh, we are way behind on both identifying, mapping, and explaining that risk, and then making the investments to start bending that curve. And, and I want to kind of back up a step in, in keeping that same direction. Um, we talked about Horry County. We talked about some of these areas that have been hit very hard by the watershed events um, from uh, in, in the hurricanes that have hit. Over time, things have built up Matthew and so on and so forth. Things have just gotten worse and worse over time. So these property values are down and you have, we get back to the resiliency divide and demographics. And so um, what is being done to help those that are less fortunate in the lower income or the lower value homes per se, um, that can't get back the dollars that they put into their home, ones that they, that's their total investment. And then others are getting, they're getting funded for their properties, whereas these folks over here are not. Um, where is this gonna be bridged at some point in the future? What's the plan for that? It hasn't, and, I'm, and that's one of the reasons I think we need to draw attention to it. Uh, the Miami Herald ran an article a couple months ago that looked at the National Flood Insurance Program, their buyout program, where they go in and buy homes out that are repetitive loss. And they found that there was a definite bias that a lot of that money went to the wealthier counties, not necessarily the most vulnerable communities. And I think that's why we need to talk about the resiliency divide. We need to get Congress to get behind this and really look at funding an adequate buyout program and focusing on the vulnerable populations, not just the property values or the uh, cost uh, you know, savings that we may see in more affluent properties. How in tune is Washington to 
how weather affects people. Uh, we live here in the, the Carolinas, um, the Charlotte metropolitan area, Winston-Salem, Greensboro, um, over 2 million people live in that general area and there's no adequate radar coverage to detect tornadoes, uh, flash flooding. Uh, we hear these stories of, of folks who are continuing to have homes flooded and they're not really getting the attention we need. Is, is this something that, that the Washington culture, the, the senators, the House representatives, they kind of push the weather and what it does off to the side to, I know everything should be focused on, but do you think sometimes weather and their issues kind of get pushed to the side a little bit? A little bit. The only time they get serious about weather is when there's a catastrophic failure in their district. I mean, think about it. The Weather Service couldn't even get a supercomputer to run better models uh, until after Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy showed how inadequate their computational powers were. So unfortunately, everything from getting WSR-88s, which was the result of several airplane crashes due to micro shear, to uh, you know the latest funding for the Weather Service and this you know Superstorm Sandy stimulus package, uh, Washington tends to be reactive, uh, and so until a member gets hit in their district, then it becomes a big issue. Uh, but overall, uh, most people treat the weather, uh, and, and again, it was always amazing to me, members of Congress that thought you could defund the Weather Service because you had other private meteorologists issuing forecasts, and the Weather Service shouldn't be competing with them. And they actually were promoting uh, defunding the Weather Service and letting you know other organizations do it. Craig, do you think we have a radar crisis on the horizon? I think if we're serious about being able to rapidly detect uh, fast-moving uh, tornadoes, particularly now the warning systems have caught up with the forecasting. Uh, just having better resolution on forecast, but we can't tell people more precisely, I don't think would have been a good match. But if you think about it now, we're moving away from countywide warnings to polygons. We now have with the weather, uh, you know, the wireless emergency alerts, the better ability to geocode cell phones. And now moving past the original 120 characters to start including links in that, we can actually now issue across cell phones more detailed warnings from the weather service than their current technology can really do. And they've been migrating that way. So now they can do polygon warnings yet they're still basing it upon radar technology that will miss part of that. There's still gaps in that coverage. And everybody forgets, unless you're in severe storm mode, those things are scanning. Everything you're seeing is delayed. It's not what's actually happening. So, you know, we, we've seen this before where the tornadoes will actually drop, hit, and pop back up before the radar completes its circle and it gets the updated forecast information. So by the time you see a hook echo, it's already done its business and dropped back in the sky. Well, Craig, I want to transition us away um, from this last topic. And as we're kind of running short on time here, talk about something that is near and dear to all of our hearts here at the Carolina Weather Group, uh, the Waffle House Index. That's something that we've talked about before. We had the PR director, Pat Warner, from Waffle House on last year in 2019 to discuss um, what exactly it is from the Waffle House perspective. But I'd like to hear about it from the FEMA perspective and how the Waffle House Index works, works its way all the way up to the president. Well, uh, FEMA will tell you that the Waffle House index really isn't their index, and that was just me trying to be folksy. Um, but it actually started in Hurricane Charlie. Uh, I'd been out on several disasters, and, and the thing I could just kind of, it was just accepted was if there was anything open, it was going to be a Waffle House. But in Charlie, uh, we had gone down to Charlotte County, uh, 
And I ended up staying down there for about two weeks. So we'd get up around 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, try to find something to eat. And we'd spend the rest of the day working. And, you know, we're doing 18-hour days. So if you didn't get breakfast, you may not eat. The first morning we get up, we were down near uh, uh, Fort Myers. We had to get on the interstate and head south because there was nothing open where we were at. And the first thing we get to is Waffle House. We go in and sit down. And this lady comes out with a mimeograph menu. You know, you're so used to the big plastic menus. And I already knew what I was going to order. But she says, we the only thing we have is on this. And that was like, well, okay. And so we ordered, but, you know, we got coffee. We got our eggs. You know, we got a good breakfast. Uh, but it wasn't everything you would normally expect there. Uh, next morning, we get up. And the, act, the actual interchange we're at, that Waffle House was now open. Went in there, same deal, mimeograph menu. Uh, so the, the folks I was with, Ben Nelson, who was our state meteorologist in 2004, he's now with the Jacksonville Weather Service Office as a forecaster there. And at that time, Major uh, uh, Tad Warfel, now Colonel Warfel with the Florida National Guard with me. And they basically, we were color coding the counties after Charlie. Uh, red, yellow, and green using a stoplight to show indicators, EOC activation, search and rescue schools, stuff like that. And they put into the slide deck the Waffle House Index. And that's where it came from. Green was open with a full menu. Yellow was open with a limited menu. And red was closed. Um, and I guess it would have stopped there, except we had changed how we operated for it. Uh, we weren't waiting for the counties to do assessments to say they needed help after these hurricanes. Because I kept asking, well, why don't we just respond like it's bad? We'll get there faster. And if they don't need us, we'll go home quicker. Well, the question was, if you're responding out on the panhandle, like with Hurricane Ivan, and you're driving out I-10, uh, and literally, we were going right as soon as the hurricane force winds passed. I told guys, we're going to be safe, uh, but we ain't going to stay dry. We're not waiting for blue skies. So we'd go in right as the storm was moving out. And the question was, where do you stop? And, and that was kind of how the Waffle House Index got used. If you got there and the Waffle House was open, it ain't bad. Keep going. If you get there and the Waffle House is open, but they got a mimeograph menu, well, we're dealing with power outages. We probably got a lot of mass care issues. But for the search and rescue teams, don't stop. Keep going. And if you get there and the Waffle House is closed, that's going to be pretty bad. Go to work. And it just kind of became the shorthand. In Florida, it seemed like all these hurricanes going across the interstate, the Waffle House was a pretty good indicator of what was happening. And the other thing, because we never really talked to the Waffle House, we, you know, uh, about them getting open and all the stuff they do to stay open. It was just our shorthand for where do we stop and go to work when we're driving in the areas. Because you'll see start seeing damages 100 miles out uh, with a hurricane, but that's not where the impacts are the worst. And so it just became a shorthand for us of where do you go to work in a hurricane? So I got to ask, Craig, what, what's your go-to meal at Waffle House? I mean... New York strip steaks, I like the steak and eggs, scrambled eggs, hash browns, uh, uh, scattered and smothered, uh, black coffee. And if you're on the limited menu, what, what do you go with? Scrambled eggs, omelets, whatever they got. I'm not picky if they got a limited menu. But generally, they'd have eggs and bacon, stuff like that. Uh, the funniest thing was when I was in Joplin, uh, we got out there. I was actually on the West Coast, had to fly back into Joplin, got there late at night. We did a whole bunch of interviews the next day. I've been running on about three hours sleep in about 48 hours. It's now about 6 p.m. We're heading back to our hotel for the first time. And there's a Starbucks. And all these cars are parked around the Starbucks. I'm like, hey, guys, just pull in. I need a coffee. And we pull into the Starbucks. It's closed. We couldn't figure out why all the cars were there. Then we realized they didn't turn their Wi-Fi off. So folks in Joplin who had 
they were just trying to get connections were circled around there. So we went back to our hotel. There's a Waffle House right there. I'm like, we're going in there. I know they got coffee. And sure enough, you go into the into the into the Waffle House. They got coffee because they're pouring bottled water in the coffee makers. Because all of Joplin was under bold water orders, but Starbucks was closed. Wi-Fi was on. Waffle House. They're just pouring bottled water in those coffee makers making coffee. So I got my coffee. So switching gears, Craig, um, I wanted to ask you, are there any memorable moments that stick out in your mind while you worked at FEMA? Um, for example, the 2011 tornado outbreak in Alabama or Superstorm Sandy, anything like that? Yeah, it was um, uh, the, the Tuscaloosa tornado outbreaks was pretty impressive. Uh, and again, uh, we came into Birmingham, picked up a, a Black Hawk, and I was flying up to the northern part of the state. I don't think people realize how bad the northern tier of the Alabama counties got hammered. Uh, TVA had major transmission lines ripped out. We went to one town. Uh, they were they were basically lost everything. They had brought a command post from the southern counties. They used to go the other way during hurricanes. They'd all go south, but in that thing, everybody from the south was going north. And they literally had 911 in this mobile command post, and, and they were dispatching, and everything, all their equipment was lined up on the side of the road because the station was just gone. Um, and I remember, you know, the president uh, was coming in. Uh, you know, he, he he gets on, you know, how bad it is. I'm trying to describe it, but it really was it, it was hard to describe. He got there, he saw it, and that kind of came in shorthand. So. Joplin happens and I'm on the ground in Joplin I get the same call he's going to come in in a couple of days he was always very uh, respectful that he didn't want to get there when it would have interfered with the response because he knew what happens when he comes in as far as security and stuff like that but he didn't want to wait too late so it was always you know the governor working with the governor working with local officials and, and essentially you know my recommendation so he's calling me about Joplin and he's going how how is it and I says it's worse than Tuscaloosa and he's like worse and i have to say joplin as far as total devastation is the first time i've seen total devastation uh, when you were down where that hospital was i mean think about a tornado that's powerful enough to rotate a, 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 a steel frame building and actually turn it uh, and uh literally the, the area a mile wide close to 10 miles long varying in width uh, anything in there was totally destroyed. Anything outside of it pretty quickly got to the point where you didn't even know a tornado hit. And um, I just remember that, you know, describing it to him and he's going, how bad is it? I said, it's worse than Tuscaloosa. And, and he was just talking, taking it back because the, the impacts in Tuscaloosa were pretty dramatic. And I'm like, yeah, it's worse here in Joplin. Well, Craig, uh, one last question, kind of a fun question, kind of, you know, a little bit disgusted just a, a few seconds ago. Uh, you and President Obama, Vice President Cheney, you're, you're sitting around. Did y'all ever talk about weather? You know, weather's a, a thing that a lot of people talk about. Did you guys just ever, you know, talk about the weather, what's going on? No, but, uh, uh, you know, between uh, – I went out on a couple of disasters with uh, Vice President Biden, and I remember going up into uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. And it was really funny because uh, he's like, Craig, these are my people. And I knew he was from the area, but I, I didn't realize that, I mean, people on the street knew Joe and called him that. I'm like, Mr. Vice President, they go, hey, Joe, you know, how's your, 
you know, I haven't seen you. And Joe would be going, how's your grandfather, your dad, you know, cousin, uncle? He knew people. Uh, so that was the thing that really struck me about Vice President Biden was in a lot of these communities we go into, uh, he had a very personal connection. And particularly in that part of the country, they knew he was from there. You know, they knew the families. They, they knew each other. Um, President Obama, I remember uh, two things. One, uh, I was meeting him down in New Orleans. It was the anniversary of Katrina, and uh, he's asking me how it's going. I said, well, we got hurricanes in the Pacific, hurricanes in the Atlantic, and fires in between. And he just looks at me and says, you know, you're a smartass. I'm like, hey, I'm just reporting what's happening. Uh, but the other cool thing about, Vice, uh, about the president was uh, I was told early on that they wanted me to uh, wear my logo wear when I was at the White House during disasters. So during Matthew, I'm giving a briefing to the president in the Oval Office, uh, wearing khakis and my FEMA logo shirt and my FEMA windbreaker, and everybody else is in suits. And there's this great picture of uh, the president. I'm sitting next to the president wearing my blazer and my logo wear. Everybody else in suits for the briefing. And people said, how do you, how do you get away from that? Everybody dressed up to go in there says, uh, you know, they basically uh, told me to look like I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. So I wore what I wore when I was at FEMA headquarters when I went to the uh, White House to brief. In fact, if I was wearing a suit, they'd always, you know, look at me kind of excused. I said, hey, this is camouflage. When I'm wearing a suit, I just blend in with everybody else running around with a White House badge. We, we certainly enjoyed having you. Um, if you have a website, social media that uh, account or anything like that, that our, our listeners and, and people who are viewing this uh, can follow, how can they do that? Well, you know, I tweet a little bit. I guess that's, you know, you should be aware of that. So That's how we met, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, I'll tweet it, uh, Facebook it, and LinkedIn it. Um, and uh, again, uh, I've seen you guys out there. I've just, you know, Thrilled to be invited. Hey, we're, we're now, now I feel now I feel like I've made it. I've been on. <laughs> you know? well, we we appreciate your time and uh, again. Oh, it's been Marshall Shepard an email says you. I've been on your podcast, but it wasn't half as much fun as. <laughs> Craig, thank you uh, for being with us tonight. Uh, interesting conversation, and, and folks, uh, again, it's very important to know the risk as we enter the COVID season or the hurricane season mixed in with the COVID and hopefully you'll take Craig's advice uh, as you prepare. So until next time, we hope you have a great week and we'll see you back here on the Carolina Weather Club.